word of prayer. Lord, can we thank you for all of that? But thank you that we can read the scriptures not only for the beauty that we find in them, but also for the challenges. Because it will often be those from which we learn the most. So Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us, not simply to understand your word, but to bring it home to our, the inmost recesses of our hearts and minds. Amen. Well, it was going so well, wasn't it? Up to about verse 19. <laughs> um, uh, and then David seems to have driven his car off the road, don't you think? Um, here we have one of those beautiful and personal of all of the Psalms. He says, in effect, Lord, you're amazing. You know me through and through. You are with me everywhere I go. You formed me in my mother's womb. Oh, and by the way, isn't it about time you started smiting your enemies? This evening and next Sunday evening, the preachers, each preacher has been uh, invited to choose uh, his own psalm, and uh, I gravitated almost automatically to this psalm uh, to deal with uh, tonight uh, because of its great beauty. It is uh, ranks with the 23rd psalm, you know, the, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, as one of the most beautiful, one of the most popular, one of the most be- best loved. Um, I, I knew that it had a sting in the tail, um, and to be honest, when I first chose this psalm, I was minded to contact Rebecca and say, actually, miss that last bit out. Perhaps they won't notice. Um, but then when I reflected on it, spent more time with it, studied it, uh, prayed through it, I came to realize that not only the psalm would lose its integrity if we, left, if, we, if we missed the last bit out. But we wouldn't have integrity either in reading it and, uh, and me trying to exposit it. Um, the psalm is perfectly formed. It's in four sections of, in our English versions, six verses each. It's book-ended with this uh, idea of, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me in verse 1, and then the bookend at the other end in uh, in verse uh, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So it's perfectly formed. So everything between those two bookends belongs. And yet it seems such a shock for David to say all these beautiful things about God and God's knowledge of him and say, oh, and by the way, please start slaying your enemies. Uh, I hate them. Um, It's as though David has been driving his car through the countryside, admiring the beautiful scenery, and then he suddenly stops the car and has a fit of road rage. What are we to make of it? Yet, as I say, I'm not going to miss that bit out. In fact, I'm going to try and get there quite quickly. 
because I've come to see that the psalm is going somewhere and that this last section, the difficult section from verse 19 onwards, is not only a necessary part of the psalm, but in some important ways its climax and its focus. But I'm going to need to try and explain that to you as carefully as I can. But let's just see fairly quickly how we get there. First uh, section of the psalm, verses 1 to 6, says this. God knows me completely. God knows me completely. Verse 1 again. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Though other people may misunderstand and misrepresent me, you, O Lord, know me as I really am. Though, Lord, you might have been fully occupied with keeping the planets and stars and galaxies in their orbits, nevertheless you pay attention to me and to every thought, word and action. And excuse me, folks, when I say me, I mean your me as well as my me. Do you understand what I mean? You know, apply the me to yourself, just I'm applying it uh, to, to, to myself. Each individual, each of you and me. Verse 5, uh, even more remarkable. You hem me in. The picture there is being beset, besieged, surrounded by God. At every turn, wherever I turn, forwards, sideways, backwards, I come face to face with God. I want to ask you briefly how that feels. For you to know that God knows you so completely. If you were to spend just a day in London, and I spent half a day in London last, last Wednesday, but you spent the day in London, the chances are you'd be caught on camera something like over 300 times. Most of the time you wouldn't, wouldn't even realise it. And we're nervous about being part of a sort of surveillance culture, aren't we? So if that makes some of us nervous... Some people feel protected by that. Some people feel nervous about being so constantly surveyed. How does it feel to be under the constant scrutiny of God's all-seeing eye? God knows me completely. Verses 1 to 6. Secondly, God is with me inescapably. Verses 7 to 12. That's the second section. Verse 7, for example. Where... Can I go from your spirit? Lord, you are not shut up in, nor are you shut out of any place. No door can block your way. No lock can hold you out, can keep you out. No fence can block your way. Verse 8. There is no height to which I could go. No depth to which I could descend but God would be there. Verse 9, I might travel to the far east or to the distant west, but even if I wanted to escape from God, as by the way Jonah did, it would be impossible, as Jonah found. Verse 12, there is no hiding place from God. Lord, you see me as clearly in the blackest night as you do in the brightest day. 
Again, I want to ask, how does it feel, how do you feel to know that you are never alone, that you can never escape God? Does that feel comforting and reassuring, or perhaps even a little bit claustrophobic? I don't know, I'm just asking you to think about it. Um, How many people here know what T-L-G-B stands for? (laughs) T-L-G-B. Several. Okay, because uh, if you didn't know it already, then you were here uh, roughly lunchtime yesterday for that lovely Thanksgiving service for the life of Joe Dade. And uh, TLGB was one of his sayings that he often shared with, uh, with, with many of us. And uh, Nettie Pinching reminded us uh, of that. Um, TLGB, the Lord goes before. And Joe's, what Joe would say is that he would have perhaps encountered a, a difficult situation. Then later on, realize that God had a purpose in it. The Lord had gone before. Joe knew from experience that God was with him inescapably. For Joe, he wouldn't have wanted to escape, but some people would like to. How about you? So God knows me completely, verses 1 to 6. God is with me inescapably, verses 7 to 12. And now thirdly, God made me awesomely, verses 13 to 16. Um, no, I think we'll say 13 to 18. Uh, glance at verse 13 uh, with me. Uh, Before my mother first became aware of my existence in her womb, Lord, you were already there, weaving together my tendons, my muscles, my nerves, my arteries, my veins, everything. When my fetal body was smaller than my little finger is, Lord, you saw its potential. You mapped out my future. And you gave me a purpose. Read Jeremiah chapter 1, for example, for Jeremiah's experience of that. As God told him, you're not too young to be a prophet. I called you to be a prophet from your mother's womb. All kind of direction in which we could take that about um, uh, about the value of human life from conception onwards. But I'll leave it there and simply ask you to... Once again, the question, how do you feel? How does it feel for you to know that God made you so awesomely? So awesomely. God knows me. God is with me. God made me. I want to get now round to this thing about how you feel about all of this. I want to talk about our reaction uh, to all of this. As I contemplate God's complete knowledge of me, his inescapable presence with me, and his awesome handicraft in making me. Surely I feel wonder and amazement. David feels wonder and amazement. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. 
David is full of wonder and amazement and praise and adoration. But I also feel a note of discomfort in this psalm, as though David reflects on all this knowledge, all of this presence, all this handiwork, and thinks, how do I cope under that kind of scrutiny? How can I withstand such a divine microscope? When God looks at me with his all-seeing eye, what dark secrets might he expose? What selfish motives might he bring to light? What blemishes might he show up? There's no medical examination, no Ofsted inspection, no inquiry into abuse that could be more thorough than God's examination of me, my life, and my heart. And so I think it's with a little bit of trepidation that David prays towards the end, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. I think there's a little bit of uncertainty about if I expose myself to God in that kind of way, what will he find, and can I withstand his scrutiny? It's a bit like Peter's response to Jesus. Peter, you recall, had denied his Lord three times. And Jesus, ever so gently, ever so gently, keeps asking Peter the same question. Do you love me? And Peter in the end says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And David is wanting to do the same thing. Lord, you know everything you know. Don't you? That I love you. Which brings us finally to verses 19 to 24, the difficult bit. It seems to me that this is not some, some sudden rage. It's as though he'd been writing this beautiful psalm and run out of things to say, went off, had a row with his neighbour, and then came back in a, in a bad mood. I think that verses 19 to 24 are all of a piece with the rest of the psalm. I think that in this section, David is trying to convince himself and his God that he really is on God's side. That when God looks at him deeply into his heart, God will approve, God will vindicate what he finds. And so David is saying, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love what you love and hate what you hate. We might wish that David had stressed the first of these, Lord, I love what you love. But he goes the other way. He shows God the other side of the coin and says, I hate, Lord, what you hate. He knows that to stand with God is to stand against God's enemies. To love God is to hate evil. But hating 
God's enemies, wishing they were dead, praying that God would slay them. Well, let us note for one thing, this is not about personal vengeance. David, there's at no point does David say, I'm going to go out and get them. He gives that job to God himself, God who knows all, God who is the righteous judge of all, God, who, the judge of all the earth, who will do right. David understood what both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You find that in Deuteronomy and also in Romans. So this is not about personal vengeance. Another thing to say about this is, it's poetry, folks. Doesn't make it untrue, of course not. But it does mean that it's put in poetic language. Hebrew poetry, no less. And Hebrew poetry has a habit of putting everything in black and white terms. Psalms and Proverbs talk about the righteous and the wicked as if there was no continuum between those. You're either righteous or wicked in order to make the point. And to make it clear, there are basically two ways to live. Hebrew poetry uses concrete language. Hebrew poetry, Hebrew thinking, doesn't deal in abstract notions like wickedness. It deals in concrete notions, wicked people. So it's not about personal vengeance, and it's poetry, folks. But let us agree that when David says, if only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men, and so on and so forth, let's just say that David wanted God to know that he, David, was outraged by the evil that he felt surrounded by. And let us ask ourselves if there is a place for that kind of outrage in the face of evil and wickedness in our world today? Is there a place for anger? When we go to do God's work of healing, say, and find that critics are only interested in fault-finding. Well, Mark chapter 3 and verse 5 says that when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, found himself in that situation, he looked round at those critics in anger deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. A place for anger. Is there a place for red-hot passion when God's good gifts are used for evil and selfish purposes? Well, when in John chapter 2, we are told the story of uh, Jesus um, turning the tables of the moneylenders over, uh, 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 turning upside down and clearing out the temple precincts. Jesus' disciples thought of a verse from the Psalms, and that verse says this Psalm 69, verse 9 Zeal for your house consumes me. Now, zeal is a strong word, it's a passionate word. There is a place in our Lord's emotional life for him to feel so zealous about God's honour that he did something about it. 
Is there a place for crying out to God to vindicate those who have been and are being persecuted and killed for the sake of the gospel? Is there a place, in other words, for echoing the prayer that is put into the mouths of God's martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 when they cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Fellow Christians, we are, are we not, too often satisfied with mere disapproval of evil. Sometimes a good dose of outrage will work wonders for the kingdom of God. It was outrage that David felt and we may, in certain circumstances, follow him in that. But, returning again to Psalm 139, this, after all, is Old Testament and not New Testament. Both the Old Testament and the New know that God will deal decisively with wicked people if they remain wicked. But the Old Testament has only a shadowy view of how and when this will happen. It's not until we reach the New Testament that it becomes crystal clear. It will come, God will deal decisively and finally with the wicked at the end of the age. For the moment, God in his love and wisdom has pressed the pause button on final judgment. This teaching is written all over the pages of the New Testament, perhaps nowhere clearly than the third chapter of Peter's second epistle. And Peter says this, By God's word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So why, there's that clear sense that judgment has been put on hold, and then Peter answers the question, why has God put final judgment on hold? Why doesn't he sort it out now? And Peter answers his own question. It's because the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So here's the good news, so clear, in the Christian gospel, in the New Testament, in the life and teaching of Jesus and the apostles. The God who knows you completely, knows the worst about you as well as the best, also knows the remedy for your soul. The God who is with you wherever you go, knows how to guide you into eternal life, the way everlasting, as David puts it. The God who made you, who fashioned you in your mother's womb, has himself become flesh and blood and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. And so it is that day by day, thousands who were formerly enemies of God are becoming his friends. So Paul, for example, can write to the Corinthian Christians. He can give a list of different forms of wickedness (laughs) and say, and such were some of you, 
But you were washed. You were set apart. You were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The Lord himself, his apostles, could see so clearly what was only dimly seen and from time to time by David and the prophets that there is a way out of wickedness. Yes, there is a day of reckoning for them all, for those who will not turn, but a great, great opportunity for us to call and invite folks to turn to God and find his grace and love and forgiveness and for people, men and women, boys and girls, everywhere to respond to that invitation. Can I ask you, if you have a Bible open, or can I just make sure that you have that psalm open, and I'd just like to invite you, as, we, as I close this part of our service, to invite you to say as a prayer with me the last two verses of this, of this psalm. So page 600, uh, 629, 629, I invite you to say with me um, verses uh, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Mike, thank you.